You are listening to a very special episode of Chewing the Scenery Horror Movie Podcast. The audio that follows is a Q&A that was captured by me, Richard, on Saturday, October 3rd, 2015. Adam Green, the writer-director of the Hatchet franchise, had uh, brought a very rare, unrated 35mm print of Hatchet 2 to be shown at the Alamo Draft House here in the greater Denver area. And he was joined by Kane Hodder, who played Victor Crowley in the series. And you also know him, of course, as Jason Voorhees from some of the Friday the 13th movies. Uh, the Q&A is great. I think you'll enjoy it. I got a question in about how far scaled back a version of what he does would Adam be willing to do for the passion and the love that he has for filmmaking. So got a great answer from him and some comments from Kane. A lot of great stories. You will enjoy it. So sit back, listen, and here you go. Thank you. Hey, this is Adam Green, the director of Hatchet, Frozen, and the star of Holliston. And you're listening to Chewing the Scenery Horror Movie Podcast. Wait a second. Why am I doing a plug for a different podcast? No, 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 no. no. L- listen to the, the movie crypt. Okay, fine. Fuck it. Listen to Chewing the Scenery Horror Movie Podcast. And then listen to the movie crypt podcast. So we had a million dollars. And so 
Uh, we cast and we started building our sets. Everybody had their contracts. And then uh, all of a sudden, uh, Tamara Feldman, who was Mary Beth in the first one, her agent started trying to be a hero. And when you're dealing with like Warner Brothers or something like that, you have a really good agent. Like sometimes you can pull that shit off where you, know, you kind of wait till the 11th hour and then try to start making some ridiculous demands. But when the only other movie of note that you've been in was this, um, you, you're not gonna win. And we only had so much money. There was no more money to find. But agents sometimes think, trust me, like they'll find it. They'll find a way to get more money. And just started asking for a ridiculous amount of money. Ridiculous. And we were just like, dude, that's never gonna happen. But it was already written. We were, we were ready to shoot. And uh, so obviously at one point I'm like, all right, do I just scrap the whole thing and write a different sequel and not do what I always set out to do with this one long story that I set up? Um, or do I let the, the agent of the girl who's in, at the time she was in a Taco Bell commercial, um, ruin it? And so I called her personally. I'm like, Tamara, I know the game this guy's playing. He's telling you to listen to him, that he's going to win. You're not going to win on this. Like, we're going to move on without you. And she didn't call back and did what the agent said and hit behind the agent. And so ultimately the agent said to Corey Neal, our producer, here's the deal, Corey. He's like, you guys start shooting in two weeks and you can't make a hatchet movie without Tamara Feldman. <laughs> and Corey said, okay, watch. And so I called up Daniel Harris. And now what a lot of people don't know is that Danielle and Tamara were the two that were in contention for the first one. It was between the two of them. And the only reason I didn't go with Danielle was because at that point we'd already cast Kane and there was Tony Todd and there was Robert England and Josh Leonard from Blair Witch Project and Mercedes McNabb from Buffy and it was starting to become like a joke almost with how many horror people there were. So we went with, uh, with Tamara and so I called Danielle, I told her what was going on and she said, I don't even care, you don't even need to tell me how much money it is or whatever, I don't care. I'm there for, Danielle and I have been very, very close friends for a long time. And she said, I'm there for you. She's like, I just need one thing, just one requirement. And I'm like, what, what's that? And she said, you need to say, I'm wrong. <laughs> I should have cast you. Like, I was wrong, I should have cast you. And she's like, I'm in. And so we uh, made the announcement and, um, and the fans went nuts. I mean, we were lucky because Sometimes that can ruin a movie. I hate it when they recast somebody, um, but we had no choice. There was nothing else we could do, so we kind of leveled up. And it's like, if you're gonna have to replace somebody, replace them with the biggest screen queen of our generation. So when we said, Tamara would not be coming back, there were fans that were like, oh, and then you're like, oh, but Daniel Harris is gonna be playing Mary Beth now. And it was like, yay, and, uh, and that was it. Um, and some good news, though, uh, last month was the eight-year anniversary of Hatchet opening, and after six, seven years of silence, Tamara finally reached out to me and, and said she was sorry. Um, and, uh, and that was great, because she's a great girl. She just took bad advice from a bad agent. And that, like, the people that can screw things up, who have nothing to do with them, that you guys never see or even know about, um, and sometimes the actors don't even know. I mean, how many times has that ever happened to you where you found out that your agent was the one and you didn't even know that they were doing it? Yeah, and, and even, I don't know why this jumps into my head, but 
when you hear a lot of stories like on TMZ about celebrities, actors being assholes or whatever, often it's true, but so often it's not. And I, a perfect example that just popped into my head when he was talking about, you know, Tamara's agent ruining this for her, was that I was doing a uh, series of BMW commercials with Madonna once, and Guy Ritchie was actually directing them. And the first day on the set, I was standing outside my um, honey wagon in the dressing room, and it was right next to Madonna's motorhome, and her security guy came walking up. I was the only one around, just waiting for the next shot. And he said, hey, uh, Madonna's coming to her motorhome, so when she passes by, you don't look her in the eyes. <laughs> I said, wait, what? He said, yeah, don't look her in the eyes. I said, could oh, you vote? Would they let you vote? <laughs> so, of course I could vote, but I'm not going to right now. But he said that, and I thought, wow, really? What, a, what an asshole she must be. So she walked up, and naturally, I'm sure you guys can appreciate and realize what I'm going to say. She walked up, and I looked her right in the eyes and said, how you doing? And she said, hey, doing great. How are you? And continued. It occurred to me that it wasn't her doing that. It was her security on some kind of fucking power trip trying to act like a big shot. If I hadn't done that, I would think she's an asshole. And she wasn't at all. And that just goes to show you how people working for you can fuck everything up for you and, and you never know it. Because I, I doubt she knew he was saying that. And, you know, so anyway, it's off subject, but. Well, the, the three movies do go together like one long movie where they start and stop. And so the, the one discrepancy, of course, is Tamara Feldman goes into the swamp and Daniel Harris comes out uh, at the beginning of this one. But then the other issue that we got hit with, so I, like I said, we had a million dollars to make this movie. And this movie was 20 times as ambitious as the first one. The first one had seven on-screen kills, I believe. This had 17. And, uh, and, and as you saw, this was really hard shit to do. When I first showed, uh, well, you know what, I'll, I'll wait on the effects up. But we got word from somebody who used to work at Anchor Bay that they were going to lowball us at the last second and only give us 800 grand. Now, we were, our sets were built, everybody's contracts were done, and then all of a sudden, out of a million dollar budget, $200,000 is getting taken out of it. That, like, there's like nothing you can do. And so we heard about it, and we weren't totally sure it was true because it didn't make sense. We were their biggest, like Hatchet until Frozen was their biggest hit of all time for an original genre movie. And so uh, we called our friends at Dark Sky. And this was at Christmas too. So like nobody's even, no businesses are even open. And we said, um, how would you guys like the rights to the Hatchet franchise? And they were like, are you, are you kidding? And we're like, no, we're totally serious. Um, we told them what was happening. And at the time, they weren't really, they didn't really go over like 600 grand for budgets at the time. And they're like, well, I mean, if you guys need the money like tonight, I mean, the best we could do is like 800. And I said, fine, I'd rather take 800 from you than 800 from them after all we've done for them and, and all this. And, and again, I don't want to sound like I'm trashing Anchor Bay, the company. This was one person's decision, whoever was going to make it. I'll, you know, anyway. So Anchor Bay said, oh, by the way, we only have 800. Probably like laughing to themselves, <laughs> got him. I'm like, that's okay, we're doing it with Dark Sky. 
So now though, we had a 24 day shoot and now we have to deal with a $200,000 loss. You can't go to the crew and the stage and your construction and your actors and say, here's what happened, we need to cut your rate massively. Nobody's gonna do that. They have a contract, not their problem. And for those of you who have directed or who will direct, as you'll see, everybody's on board and they want, you know, they're all a team player, but they're not taking less. Like, that somebody else can take less. So what ended up happening was we had to shoot the movie in 15 days. 15 days for that. Remember, 17 on-screen kills, 15 days. And then we had like a skeleton crew day in Louisiana just for the boats moving through the swamp. And um, the producers just didn't get paid. Zero, nothing. So uh, that's how this, this one got made. So we were very proud of the movie when it was done, that we pulled it off, that, that it turned out the way it did, and then the whole thing happens with the movie getting pulled. Um, so you can sort of start to see why by the time Hatchet 3 came around, I was like, you know what, I'm gonna pass the torch here and I'll write it, I'm gonna oversee it, I'm gonna still, I have final cut, I'm gonna be involved, but I can't, I can't go through it again. Uh, and I, plus I had Holliston going at that point, another movie, and um, anyway, Hatchet 3 is a different story. But, uh, so that was the, the first major set of problems. The other thing that we faced was that uh, this was right after the writer's strike. So a lot of people hadn't worked in a long time. And I fought really hard to keep this movie in town in LA so that people who worked on the first one could work on it again. Because if you go out of town, sometimes you get a good tax incentive, but you have to hire all local people. And we wanted people to be able to come back. So people were begging us for jobs on this. They hadn't worked in 18 months. They were just like, please, please hire me. So we hired them. And it's a non-union movie, which is hard to do in LA. Your crew has to be with you on that because if it turns to union, the crew's not necessarily going to get paid anything more, but the union's going to get paid. So the union starts pressuring the crew, hey, uh, strike, turn the movie. There's no more money. Like if they strike, it's just over. Like we can't do it. So uh, somebody came in the first day very sick, and everybody knew how sick the person was because if you went near the bathroom, you could hear the atrocities that were happening. And we realized this this individual had the swine flu. And so we're like, dude, you have to go home. We're on a sound stage with real plants, real tree. Every tree you see in that movie is real. It's more of a real swamp than a real swamp. <laughs> and uh, stuff started growing, fungus and mushrooms. And there was, it was like a cesspool. And then you got a dude coming in with the swine flu. Well, he didn't want to leave because he hadn't worked in so long and he needed the money. Within 24 hours, half the crew had the swine flu. Oh, and so there were days where I was directing and throwing up in a bucket and then still going. And I think we have pictures how people had to wear like masks over their faces and stuff to try to work. Like everybody was so sick. You never got the flu, right? No, I, I was fortunate. I mean, from, from my point of view, shooting the movie on a soundstage in some ways was great because I was going to the same location every day. Uh, the temperature within the set was constant, so I could get used to that. Uh, the, the drawback was that when we were shooting the first one out in uh, Sable Ranch, at a certain point, the sun would start to come up and then we had to quit because it no longer looked like it was night. Now, when you're in a soundstage, you don't have that problem which means that I had much longer days in the makeup uh, 
and and because it was a like a short shooting schedule, it made the long days long too. And something happened with the makeup, the the body that I was wearing had what I've come to find out from you know uh, makeup effects people that I've worked with since that there was some something left within the which is what I always thought within the foam latex body piece that I wore some kind of chemical that completely blistered my whole back for some reason and it was burning like crazy constantly and and I almost got to the point where I had to consider letting uh, my buddy Rick who works stunts with me all the time Rick McCollum he was Silent John in that movie um, I almost had to let him wear the makeup because he was the one that wore it in the first movie when I was Thomas Crowley, um, you know, trying to rescue Victor. But somehow the the my skin just blistered up really badly, and I almost had to to let somebody do it. But you know, with with me, it's like God. Unless I'm playing another character and there's no choice, I don't want anybody else in that makeup. So. So his back was like bloody and shredded just from the makeup. And then when we shot the fight between Kane and R.A., that massive fight between the two of them, uh, five minutes into the fight, Kane pulled his bicep. So it was black and blue from like here to here. It really was. I have a picture of it still on my phone. I've never had a bruise an entire from my wrist to my upper arm. And it was torn like he's saying early in the fight it took you know 10 hours to shoot the fight or something the bicep tore like uh five ten minutes into the fight so it was a kind of a rough rough day i love that fight though i think it's so well put together and stuff and then curb stomping ra is one of <laughs> his eyes fucking blink <laughs> so we only have 15 days we don't have the money we're supposed to have everybody's throwing up or shitting themselves Kane's back is coming off um, and then there were a couple crew people that got the idea of alright well uh, people are sick let's take advantage of this so they come in in their like pajamas go right to the set medic and say hey man I got the flu and the set medic would be like dude you gotta go home well because they came in they're getting paid for the day so we can't replace them. Like, we don't have the money for that. So they were coming in, getting paid, and not going home, but going to another set and working there. Oh. And, and some of these people were the same ones who begged us, please keep the show in town. I, I have kids. I, you know, I haven't worked because of the strike. Um, it, we, <laughs> this, it was one of the worst experiences ever. One of the hardest experiences ever making this movie. Uh, I mean, just from start to finish. And... And I, I don't, it was supposed to be our victory lap. You know, it was supposed to be, wow, we get to, we get to make a sequel. We get to do this again. And like, look, the first one was such a success and uh, it could not have been harder. Um, there's, there's very few enjoyable moments uh, in the making of this. But uh, to speak of the positive, with the first movie, John Carl Beekler was the, his shop did the effects and he was the lead effects person. But Robert Pennegraft, who was his shop foreman, he did like Mrs. Primatio's death. Like he did like a lot of the most standout moments in that. And I'm very big on promoting from within. Um, people who have been with the Aeroscope family for a while, giving them a shot and stepping them up. And I said to Robert, have you thought about doing, being the key effects on Hatchet 2? Why don't you do it? And he said, well, I, 
I, I don't know if I can do it. I'm like, of course you can do it. You did the best stuff in the first one. And he said, but um, I don't have a shop. And I'm like, well, your, your aunt, his 90-year-old aunt, Aunt Dolly, has a garage. Like, let's do it out of Aunt Dolly's garage. And he's like, we're going to make Hatchet 2 out of my 90-year-old aunt's garage. I'm like, yes. And we did. And some of those effects, because remember, no CG, um, like the double chainsaw kill with, I mean, it was so complicated to pull those things off. The curb stomp, Tony Todd's death at the end being pulled out of his skin. When Robert's reading this stuff, he was panicking because he's like, I, I, I don't, I'm like, you can do it, you can do it. I'm really good at something you can do. I don't know how the fuck to do it. But I'm like, you, you can totally do it. Um, and I'm, every time I see it, I'm so incredibly proud of him because that, that was his first movie as a key. And I mean, he did such a good job with those effects. I mean, no time, no money. What normally happens is the effects crew will say, we need three months of prep to build all of these things, get them working, and that way on set, they're ready to go. And then the distributor sends the money a little bit later, later, later. Hatchet three, he, Robert needed three, three months. They gave him three weeks <laughs> to do it all in. Um, and some of it, I feel, shows uh, in that one. But anyway, uh, so that was that. Um, but the other uh, sort of sequel thing to talk about is that whenever you're going to do a sequel, because um, I'm, you know, I'm a horror fan like you guys, and I, I go see all the stuff, and you can't please everybody with a sequel, and you just have to know that going into it. But this uh, path was laid out long before we even shot the first one, and so they have it on camera somewhere. Because I always address the crew and give some sort of. Bill Pullman like speech before the <laughs> before we start, and I had said um, we're only here because of the fans. Like this was not like a main Hatchet One was not a mainstream success. There was nobody who supported it. We had no marketing, nothing. But the fans carried this thing uh, through the roof. And every decision you make, whether it's a wardrobe decision, um, a, a piece of Spanish moss hung somewhere. This is their movie now. It's not ours. Do it for them. Uh, and it was meant to be, in the grand scheme of things, with the three, like the Empire Strikes Back of the three, where it's a little bit darker, it's a little bit more serious, there's more story to it. Uh, and I said, but just also remember, when this first comes out, so many people are going to say it sucks, and that the first one was better, and this one's a piece of shit, and it's awful. And a lot of that is going to be backlash to the positive reviews that the first one had. Uh, the first one had kind of great reviews across the board almost, especially from the genre media. So this time, now it's time for us to take the fall and they're all going to say it's not very good. Well, that didn't happen as bad as I thought it would, but it did, it did happen to some extent. And then not until the third one came out and people started going back and watching the first two again, you started seeing people really change their tune and, and even change their reviews about, about this one. Um, it, like, we said at the beginning, this is our favorite of, of the three. It's hard to pick one, I mean, they're, they're different. And the first one, it was my first movie, it was my, I mean, God, I, it, I loved it. But this one, um, the, the effects, the, the, the flashback scene, I mean, Kane's performance as Thomas Crowley in that. Tony Todd as well, I mean, just amazing. The, the night that we shot that scene where he tells the real story of what happened to Victor Crowley, um, it's voiceover. So we just, he was in the voodoo shop with a microphone and the whole crew came, we, we dimmed the lights and everyone lied on the floor on like blankets and stuff with their eyes closed and just listened to Tony tell the story. And it was, it was magical. 
And then um, I don't feel like a lot of people realized how funny Tony Todd can be until this. Um, Holliston has done that for people as well. I mean, your episodes, Danielle's, uh, Tony's. And I wish, um, and it, I've seen it starting to happen now, but I wish more people realized just because you're really good at killing people or doing stunts or whatever, like, doesn't mean that's all you can do. Give them a fucking chance and watch. Like, uh, and, and, and this movie really did that for a lot of people. Ari Mihailov, uh, no one had seen him in anything in, in a long time. Tom Holland, director of Child's Play and Fright Night, Fright Night, which was a huge influence on me because, again, just like Landis with American Werewolf, comedy and horror. Tom Holland started as an actor. A lot of people don't know that. He was uh, Tom Fielding. And then he had a, a stroke that um, had paralyzed part of his face, so his acting career was over. And then he wrote you know, Psycho 2, and Child's Play happened, and Fright Night, and all those great things. But I got him to come out of acting retirement for this, which he was not so sure he wanted to do, but um, he's, he's great too. I mean, it's, it's just, it's so great. And that voodoo shop scene with all the hunters, and Lloyd Kaufman's in there, and Marcus Dunstan, and Mike Mendez, and Ryan Schifrin, and Dave Parker, and, Tony Todd walks out to do the run through, and then he comes back to me and he's like, dude, this isn't a rehearsal, man. This is a fucking audition. You got every direct, every fucking working director in Hollywood's in this room right now. And he was so mad at me. I'm like, so you better do a good job, dude. Um, uh, well, we could keep going forever, but so I just want to see if, if there's questions, raise your hand just so we make sure that we do get to, uh, to questions. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, so you mentioned that uh, you have difficulty with the MPAA, and I know that Eli Roth has been real public with, he says he does not have problems with the MPAA. You guys make similar films, horror films, very gory stuff. Uh, do you have any idea why you guys would have different opinions? Yes, uh, uh, and I, I love Eli to death, um, but Cabin Fever it was put out through Lionsgate, uh, Hostel was put out through Sony. Sony owns, they control about 70% of the MPAA, so that's why it doesn't have those problems. Um, when you are an independent movie being put out by a distributor that doesn't even normally do theatrical releases, they kind of just get ready. So it was, it was a lot harder. Um, again, that documentary, this film has not yet been rated. Some of the stuff in it, it's shocking. Um, for instance, one of the, I find the MPAA at least 10 years ago when I was dealing with them with this stuff to be extremely homophobic. And because one of the reasons why they gave Hatchet one an NC-17 was um, for uh, lewd, sexual, whatever. And I'm like, wait a minute. Uh, in the first one, it's a like Girls Gone Wild thing. They lift their shirts. There's not even sex. Like, it, it's a parody of Girls Gone Wild. How is that lewd? And what it ultimately ended up coming down to, and they didn't want to say it, was that Misty and Jenna kissed each other. And I'm like, so why is that offensive? And they were like, well, we're not, they wouldn't answer it. In that documentary, this film's not even rated, they show, uh, it's a shot, uh, I don't know which movie it's from, but it's two men, uh, two men having sex, and it's like a medium shot like this. So it's, uh, you're looking at one guy's face and then the back of this guy's head. And that movie got an NC-17. And again, no nudity, it's just here to here, in, in that shot. Another one, two women, same thing, NC-17. Then they show American Pie, same shot, man and a woman, rated R. Um, so it's, uh, I, I, I think the documentary is on Netflix. So it's, again, it's called, this film has not yet been rated. So you never know who they're gonna go after. And at the time, they were under fire because of the torture porn, Saw, Hostel, and then this thing comes around and it was, it was so easy for them to make an example of it. But with Hatchet One, 
I stupidly made the mistake of going to arbitration, which you don't do. You can't win. And we tried. We, we removed frames. We, we did the thing where you purposely put too much gore in that you don't want. All of it. Um, but I was just like, there's no, this makes no sense. So, I mean, the Hills of Eyes 2 had just come out when Hatchet 1 came out. And for those of you who may have not seen, uh, sorry, the, the Hills of Eyes remake, uh, there's a scene, and I, I fucking love the Hills of Eyes remake, so don't think I'm saying anything bad about it, but very different tone. And there's a scene in a trailer where they rape a woman in front of a baby, uh, suck on the mom's breast until she lactates into the monster's mouth, bite the head off uh, the family parakeet, and drink the blood. Meanwhile, dad is outside crucified and burning to death, and then they run off into the night with the baby because they're going to eat it. And when you see that with an audience, nobody's fucking laughing. Uh, and then I have a undead swamp monster with a gas-powered belt sander that does not exist in real life, killing a bunch of comedians, and it's like Monty Python with the blood flying 40 feet in the air, and that's where they're like, no, we draw the line here. So I thought I had this in the back. And uh, I went to the trial, and um, the way they do these trials, they're in a secret location, it's Dolby in Burbank. Uh, and uh, they invite 12 industry professionals, which are supposed to be theater owners and operators, studio executives and other directors, who come in, and they're not there to rate the movie, they're there to watch the movie, hear the, the filmmaker's case, hear the MPAA's case, and decide was this movie judged fairly with its rating. Nobody's ever won one of these things. And again, but I'm like, I'll do it. So I went, and um, uh, I won't get into the whole story, but uh, Dee Snyder from Twisted Sister is, uh, has been my mentor through my whole life. It's a crazy story. If you have Hatchet one on Blu-ray, the whole story's on there. There's a segment called The Twisted Tale. It's an amazing story how serendipitous our lives have been. In the 80s, he was the one who stood up to Tipper Gore, if you guys remember, when she started the PMRC and warning labels on records. And the only two people in music who stood with him were Frank Zappa and John Denver, of all people. <laughs> the rest of the metal community was like, go get him deep, and ran away. Uh, <laughs> which is what happened with me, too. People were like, go get him, but like, they didn't want to get involved because they had movies coming out, and I understand it. So Dee had called me on my way into the trial, and he said, look, here's the thing, man. He's like, I know you're prepared for this, and, and I know you're right, but you're going to lose. So don't let them see you cry. And I was like, Dee, I'm not, I'm not going to lose. He's like, okay, just don't let them see you cry. And I'm like, all right. Now you got to remember, 25 years to get that first movie made when it was like in my mind, all the studios that had passed on it, all the years that it took, I had toured with it for 18 months on my own dime, going to every festival. I was $80,000 in debt. I mean, like, my life was in pieces trying to get Hatchet One out, and then all of a sudden, they're going to stop it. So I went in, made my case about tone, about the fact that there's no sex in the first Hatchet, there's no drug use, there's, like, nothing realistic, all of it. I made my case about movies like Saw and Hostel and saying... Not that those are bad movies. They, everything has its place, but I feel like you're judging this unfairly and you should be applauding it because I'm trying to go back to the day when horror wasn't mean-spirited and when it was fun and when it was a, a fantasy and a magic show. And then Joan Graves gets up, which, by the way, Trent, R.A.'s character in this, uh, is when, when Reverend Zombie writes his name down, he writes Trent Graves, and then 
he says something about when Joan divorced me or whatever, so like, I got to dig in at Joan, sort of. Um, she gets up and she says, oh, they marched in the 12 industry professionals, all elderly. Um, I've been in this industry for 17 years. I didn't recognize a fucking person in that room. One of them was on a walker. And so don't tell me these are industry professionals and theater owners and operators. And they come in, they sit down, and they lure them with uh, free bagels and locks. And at one point, they were, Joan Graves was like, would you like something to eat? Like, I want to fucking eat right now. And um, they sit down, and a woman gets up, and she says, um, the movie you're going to be watching today is called Hatchet. And the room goes, Ugh. And I'm like, this is going to be awesome. And uh, so they, these, these elderly people watched the movie. They didn't laugh at anything. They were turning away from most of it. And there's some jokes in the first movie that I'd seen in every language all over the world, and they work. And so I don't remember which one it was, but one of them went by, and uh, I literally yelled from the back of the theater, come on! Like, no laugh. And I got up, I made my case. Joan got up, and she said, um, the movies that Mr. Green cited, uh, Saw, Hostel, The Hills Have Eyes, has anyone in here seen those films? Nobody had seen them. She, and then she turns to the person taking notation and said, okay, let those be stricken from the record. They don't count. And that's how the trial started. And like, I, I just I couldn't win. The poster, the black poster with a hatchet on it, they banned that. And we had to go through 11 other posters, and then we just resubmitted that one again, and they were like, okay, much better. Um, so it, it was awful, 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 awful. And very bittersweet going to see Hatchet One at the Arclight Theater in Hollywood, and it was sold out, and then watching the movie go by, and he goes to rip her face in half, but it cuts away. and like. A lot of people, that's how they see it on cable or Redbox or wherever they end up seeing it, they see that version and they, they don't know. So with this one, when this happened and then they, they pulled it, um, it was awful. And, uh, and, and I'm not angry at AMC one bit. They actually tried, you know, and I get it. Whatever happened, whatever reason they buckled, they, I, somebody, they released a statement saying it's because the movie uh, wasn't performing well financially. How do you, it's, a, it's on 68 screens with no marketing, how do you decide Thursday night at midnight that it's not performing well? And have you ever heard of um, Waterworld? Or like, did that get pulled? Did that get like, this is an independent movie and it was doing fine, but we'll never even know what it really did. That same weekend, a movie called Chain Letter opened um, and it was uh, on way more screens, only made something like $300 per screen and that ran for weeks. So uh, very, very, heartbreaking story but then what the fans did with it and how successful this movie became afterwards and that there was a third one and we did get to finish the story uh, is is amazing and that's the part you got to focus on but I never wanted to be a martyr I never wanted to have a problem with them I agree with ratings I'm offended by a lot of stuff I see when I go to film festivals like you guys a lot of times that's your only shot to see some of these movies you never hear from them again but the torture stuff was getting so vicious I mean not saying anything bad about the movie, and I love the director, uh, but we live in an age where there's a movie where they sew people's mouths to each other's assholes. <laughs> and this is the problem. Um, sorry, there are other hands. Uh, yes. Yes, first of all, thank you for all your good work and uh, the podcast, of course. And uh, question is, obviously you're not going to um, ever give up, and you're not going to stop doing what you do, uh, how scale back a version of filmmaking 
would you be willing to do, uh, given budget restrictions, time constraints, that sort of thing? That is an amazing question. Thank you. Uh, uh, so the question is, you know, my whole motto, if you guys have listened to the podcast, or have seen the shirts, never give up. And you know, I write back to everybody who writes to me. I try so hard to cheerlead everybody else who's struggling with something. Um, just because no one did it for me, and if I can be that for somebody else, that that's the real joy Thank in you. doing this. It, it really is. Um, but the question was, now that, you know, with budget restrictions and, and how hard it's getting to get anything made, um, how, basically, how scaled back would I be willing to still make a movie? Um, that's a really good question. Like, digging up the marrow, big, big success. Um, until we know a number that we would be working with, I haven't committed to doing the next one because if, if I know right out of the gate it can't be good, then I'd rather just not do it because I would hate to betray the fans and be like, well, fuck it, if that's all we have, let's just do it. Oh, well, it didn't work. And, and now that's part of the legacy of that movie. You kind of stay in the first one. Um, uh, but, and I don't want to sound dire you know, or, or fire and brimstone, because my, you know, the whole thing is always, you can do it. But it's a really hard time right now because of technology. I mean, how Hollywood watched the music business fall the way it did, and how people actually tried to blame, like hate on Metallica when they were right. Um, but Hollywood just kind of was like, well, they're not coming for us yet, we're okay, just ignore it. And, you know, internet speeds got faster, and um, it's, it's, it's awful. Now, I'm a big, huge $200 million movie with $200 million in marketing, like these Marvel movies, yeah, they get pirated to shit too, but they can, they can survive it. Not that it's right to steal those movies at all, um, and they're hurting, but a small movie like this, the moment it gets on BitTorrent, it's over. And, and I, it's been so heartbreaking to watch new filmmakers that I'll meet, like I'll see them at doing festivals with their short films, and they're amazing, and they finally get their shot, and, Somebody gave them, they believed in them, and they invested 800 grand or whatever into their movie, and then the movie leaked, and it got onto Pirate Bay, or it just it came out on VOD. The moment your movie hits VOD, you have 45 minutes before it's on the torrent sites, and, and then it's over. And if your investor didn't make their money back, or you can't show profit, and you've, like, how are you supposed to ever make another movie? Who's gonna invest? It's a business. So you, you can go and say to potential investors, but look at the reviews and, and look at how many people stole it. It doesn't matter. You failed. Uh, and so I've watched a lot of people over the past two years alone. Go, they have retail jobs now back in whatever state they came from. Like extremely talented filmmakers. And then it's a controversial subject on the podcast. When piracy comes up, uh, Lynch and I are the enemy. People hate us for it. How dare you ask me to pay for Art should be free. Art should be free. Well, communication should be free and freedom of speech and all that stuff on the internet. But if, it, if you made something, it isn't somebody else's right to steal it from you if that's not what you want them to do. Uh, and you, but you can't stop it. And there's a whole generation now that they don't know any different. You either click here and you pay a few dollars to see something, or you click here and it's free. So why would you click on that one? So you know, you try to educate people. The fans do a really good job of talking to each other when they find out that they know somebody who's doing it, and they explain what it's actually doing. Um, but it's, it's so hard to get a budget together. And I'm one of the lucky ones, because you know, Hatchet hit in 2007, before this really became an epidemic. 
And so I, I have an amazing following in my fan base. And, you know, everyone likes to say this, but it's fucking true. I have better fans than anybody else. I just do. Like, they are so not just loyal and, um, and caring and passionate, but they're so good to each other. Like, if somebody, for those of you on my Facebook page or the Halston Facebook page especially, if somebody posts something about they're going through a hard time, and then 200 fans, like, chime in to help that person. I, I've never seen any, any other artist who has that. Um, and so I'm so grateful for it. But in the meantime, I keep doing as much stuff as I can for free. Every Friday, there's a new show on Aeriescope.com, Horrified or Scary Sleepover or whatever. Every Monday, there's a podcast for free. So you, know, you do that hoping when the movie comes out, people will be like, oh, yeah, remember all the hours of free stuff they did? Fine, I'll pay the 99 cents to watch the movie. Um, how have you found uh, with the, the slipping budgets and stuff? Well, you know, before getting into that, it's just I've been doing films for 38 years. And, you know, up until recently, there was never this piracy, piracy issue and all that. And it's so disheartening to see when, when people like Adam try and explain why pirating something is fucking everything up. They immediately call him an asshole, money-hungry piece of shit. And it's so difficult to have to deal with that stuff. You try and explain to people, no, no, that's not it at all. He, he does, most of the movies we've done together, uh, I've made much more money on them than he has. And that shouldn't be that way, but that's how he is with making films. And it's not that I'm getting paid a tremendous amount, but he's most often making shit, just because he wants to, the film to get out. And then those of us that know him well know this. And then you hear people calling him a money-hungry piece of shit. It's really like, man, you really have no idea. You have no idea what you're talking about. And it's, and there, it's so frustrating. There's nothing you can really do except express your opinion on the subject. And people sometimes realize that you may be right, but very often they don't. Um, and something that came to mind, too, um, when you were talking about going to the MPAA and you, they said the title of the movie Hatchet and everybody groaned, is like my book, the original title, no, my book is called Unmasked. You guys know about it, my life story basically. It's been a real positive influence on a lot of people. I have people sitting right here in the front row that have given me stories about reading the book. Anyway, the original title of the book was Kill, because that's what I have in ta in, tattooed in my lip. It's always been my kind of catchphrase. So that was what we titled the book at the very beginning. And when we started talking about marketing and you know putting the book out, we were getting all these responses from people saying that, nah, I won't read that. Because of the title, you won't even give it a chance. So we were forced to change it to Unmasked, and which ultimately is a better title because it, to me, it means not just the hockey mask, but the mask of the scars that I wear, the mask of, you know, being embarrassed, you know, being bullied so much when I was a kid. So much more meaningful. But 
it was just amazing to me that people wouldn't even, a lot of people wouldn't even give it a chance based on the title. I mean, that's unbelievable to me. You know, maybe think, oh, well, I'm not sure about this, but I'll try it. They wouldn't even read it because of that. So, um, and you know, the people have responded so well to it. It's just, uh, it's an unfortunate thing that happens in this business, but you know, sorry getting off on that too. I stay on subject. <laughs> Can't do it. Uh, well, the, to, to answer though, uh, I, it, it, it all depends on what the story is. It's story first. Like, Ding Up the Marrow was not, a, even though it's a mock documentary, whatever, nobody knows what to call it. But it, it was not cheap to make. The monsters, the, all that stuff is very expensive. So, uh, but, but there was a way to tell that story for, on, on somewhat of a budget. So it depends. Um, but if, uh, if, if I had a script where like, there just was no way to do it right, for less than a certain amount, I would just rather not make it. Um, but I also, for other filmmakers in here, I always say, don't listen to me and take my advice. Like I've done the starving artist thing my whole way. I wanted to have my own company, and I and I have it, and I wanted you know my own studio and to work with my friends and to make the things that I want to make, and I and I and I I've achieved all of that, so I should just be happy. Um, but the price that you pay with that is that you, you struggle financially for the rest of your life. Um, and maybe I should have taken some of the remakes that I was at least offered to come in and talk about. Uh, maybe I should have done it. Um, and then I could have at least been like, cool, well the house is taken care of. If I ever have children, their college funds are taken care of. And now I'll go just do my own thing. Maybe I should have done it. I, I, I love this too much to do it. And I would do a remake if I, if I, if I at least had a chance at the beginning to do it right. I know it's going to get fucked up as things go, but when it starts off with, we want to do Hellraiser with no pinhead. <laughs> no! <laughs> like, um, and you know, the big thing is always Friday the 13th. Everyone's like, why don't you do one? Why don't you do one? And uh, I'd love to. Yeah, why don't you? <laughs> Bring me back. Unfortunately, both times that, that, that I was approached, uh, it, was, it had to be found footage. And... Um, I just, it's just, I'm not the right guy for that. So it doesn't mean it, somebody else couldn't do it and do it really well. Supposedly the new rumor is that it's not gonna be found footage anymore. Um, but uh, you know, maybe someday it'll get to happen. But in the meantime, I have my own thing. So uh, I'm, I'm happy with that. Uh, and sorry that we, we tend to go off. So yesterday's Q&A, uh, I went home to, it was seven or, seven or eight letters. I've never got letters that quickly after something. Um, but how much people appreciate it, just like how honest we are about stuff. But that that's the reason for coming, that's the reason for doing it. Especially when someone comes up to you afterwards, like, oh, I don't want to bother you. You're never bothering us. Like, that's the whole reason we're here, is to, this is what keeps us going. I'm gonna leave this weekend uh, and go home and be so inspired by by you, by the people I met, by by hearing the way you guys reacted to that. Then I can go back and, you know, be put my middle finger up towards the piracy thing or the difficulties of the business and just focus on making something else awesome for you. Uh, and so it's, I said, there's a lot of, uh, especially in the horror genre, there's directors and filmmakers, they, they don't do conventions for some reason. They're like, nah, I don't do that. And they don't understand what they're missing out on. Because the critics, the reviews, the whatever, the internet, Twitter, that's fine. But when you get to actually go somewhere where people are like, 
gather to celebrate something that they love and really talk to your own brothers and sisters, like, there's nothing else like it. So uh, I'd go to every festival that invites me, and every convention if I could. Thankfully, uh, between the TV show and the movies and the web series, and the, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna be dead in like three years, but it's gonna be worth it. Um, sorry, there was one, yes. Uh, this is a question for Kane. Um, with, you know, you collaborating with John Carl Boochler in the, um, uh, the Hatchet series and on uh, Friday 7, is there another chance you guys might get together and do something? And this is just more or less a statement. Yeah. Um, all due respect to uh, Ken Kurtzinger, New Line dropped the ball in 03. Uh, well, I tend to agree on that, but, you know, <laughs> that's a whole other story. Um, yes, John Beekler, it's pronounced Beekler. Yes, sorry, I knew I'd murder it. Sorry. Yeah, no, most people do. It uh, doesn't look like it would be pronounced that way, but, you know, the fact that he was the person that made me Jason by, you know, I, I don't think anybody can dispute that. Then to have him involved in when Adam asked me to do this, I thought that was great because, you know, we have a history and uh, I just felt honored that Adam thought I was the guy to play the character, so, um, and definitely nice to start the beginning at, as the character and then build on it. Because I don't know if people really pick up on it, but, you know, in the first Hatchet, I felt, and, and Adam did too, that Victor should be really twitchy and, you know, very uh, unpredictable and very, uh, I don't know, the, the only word I can think of is twitchy. What? Manic. Manic, yeah. And throughout the three films, my feeling was Victor was like that at the beginning because it was everything was, you know, new to him. And as he killed more and more, I, I personally toned down the twitching a little bit to make it look like, oh my God, he's actually getting used to doing this shit and, you know, getting into it almost. And, you know, it's just a character thing for me, but it was just an interesting, completely different than Jason because of, you know, running and being so animated that it was a lot of fun. Plus the makeup was amazing and uh, difficult to work in at times, but such a, such a pleasure to originate a character. and. You know, I'm, you know, who knows if we're, if I'll ever put the makeup on again. I don't know. It'd be nice, but. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> yes. Uh, I saw in the credits there was, for this one, there was a voodoo fluffer. What, what's that? <laughs> was there really? Yeah. Come on. Uh, who, who? What name was it? I don't know. Oh man! Was it? It wasn't my dog. I didn't have my dog. Right. She fluffs. Uh, <laughs> it was probably something like, uh, for instance, Kane pointed out he's like assistant to Tony Todd. How come he got an assistant? Um, <laughs> I did. Right when we were standing yeah. there. Sometimes it's a it's a contractual thing uh, with unions. So maybe somebody did the job, did a job, but isn't quite union, but we still wanted to give them credit or whatever so we'll make up something like that like Tony Todd's brother uh, Isaiah he he was Tony's stand-in just for like three days because he just wanted to come to set and hang out and he wanted to do it but we're like all right it's just you know like that would be a SAG job and 
we don't have that the budget, we don't have stand-ins. And he's like, can I just please do it? Can I please do it? And so we're like, sure. So we give him credit as assistant to Mr. Todd. So if there really is uh, one that says Voodoo Fluffer, uh, I have to look at it. It was probably one. my fluffer. <laughs> <laughs> and no, it wasn't me. And uh, by the way, you know, every movie I've done with Adam, uh, he is gracious enough to put the name of the island I grew up on, which is out in the Marshall Islands, called Kwajalein. Everybody calls it Quaj for short. So in yesterday's movie, the first one, uh, Perry Shen talks about Quaj Island uh, off here to the, to the side. And then, um, who was it that said, was it Perry again? No, said Quaj Road. Uh, Jack Cracker says, oh, yeah, yeah. out that door is Quaj Road. Right. So then yeah. Quaj is in you know pretty much every movie yeah, I Frankenstein, do. Frankenstein, Hitler yells, uh, Quajalin at one yeah. point. Um, <laughs> and Frozen, talk about Quaj Hills off to the side. And I, it's uh, as far as doing the inside jokes like that, like something like that. Now that you know, you'll notice it, but it's not something that would distract you or take you out of it. It's just the name of something. Um, with this one uh, in the Voodoo shop, when they first walk in, there's a a stand for Jack Chop kids um, and then when Tony Todd shuts off the TV you find out what actually happened to Parker the, the main character in Frozen that she did survive and that there was a lawsuit settlement so if all the movies take place in the same universe uh, which is fun for me to do and fun for the fans who watch all of them but at the same time if you don't know what Jack Chop is and you never saw Frozen you wouldn't even notice it or think twice I think some filmmakers in Filmmakers can go off the rails with the inside jokes. Uh, so was that 15 or five? Five. Um, with the inside <laughs> jokes to the point that now the audience can be like, I don't even know, why is everyone laughing? I didn't understand that or whatever. So I try to keep it you know, just, just between us and something that wouldn't distract other people. So we have five more minutes, damn it. Uh, just uh, the most blatant use of the word quaj was done on Jason X. If you ever watch it again, the chamber that Jason is frozen in uh, before he escapes and wreaks havoc. Uh, right on the very front of the chamber, it says in big letters, Quaj. And in fact, the machete comes right between the W and the A. It's K-W-A-J, so that was pretty blatant. Nice. Sorry, it's super hard to see. Uh, uh, center. Yes. Um, so in all of your scary So the question is, uh, so one of the series that I do on AeriScope.com on my company site is called Adam Green's Scary Sleepover. And uh, if you haven't watched it before, I think you'd like it. It's very fun. Uh, different icons from the horror genre come to the AeriScope studio and we have a slumber party like little kids. We're like sleeping bags and candy and uh, we'll play games. Uh, uh, you know, it's a, it's a 15 minute show, so it's not like you have to watch the entire night of a slumber party between some two grown men. Um, but it, at the point of it is that at a certain point I, I ask whoever my friend is who's sleeping over that night, what are you afraid of in real life? And Kane did the pilot episode and it was perfect because, you know, we're busting on each other and having fun, but then he gave an ex a very real answer and that set the bar for everybody else now when they saw it that, oh wow, we can't be honest. And he spoke about dementia and Alzheimer's. Uh, and 
how many fans I heard from afterwards who, look, I'm sure there's probably 20% of this room is know somebody with it or a family member is dealing with it. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, I, I don't know, the, between the podcast and the Q&As that I do, they're always eight hours long and stuff like that. Um, it's not about, oh, let's, uh, let's just be vulnerable, but it's just, uh, if I can give you guys something real, you know? Like when the conventions, when Halston would do them and we would perform, we're actors, perform. Don't just stand there and sign and answer questions. Like, do, do your thing. So the question was, what am I scared of? Um, uh, there's, <laughs> there's too many things. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, it's too long of an answer, but um, like I, if you're at yesterday's Q&A, I had a very, very hard year last year um, with Dave Brocky dying, who was one of my best friends, and uh, divorce and all these other awful things that all happened in the span of four weeks. And my dog, Arwen, is, I, we're unnaturally uh, connected and close. Um, uh, I have full-blown like panic attacks sometimes, uh, just the thought of, that she's gonna die someday, um, and so I'm, I'm talking about this. I'm, I've already started. She's four years old. I've already started to go to counseling to start to be able to deal with it. Because um, for a while I wasn't doing any appearances because I couldn't get on a plane. Um, not just because the Arwen thing, but everything I went through. The way you know, we all handle grief differently. But I would. Um, I was trying to go to a family event in Connecticut and. I never had a real panic attack before. Um, for those of you who have had it, uh, you understand, um, but like, couldn't breathe. I mean, like, I thought I was gonna die. They had to take me off the plane. And so all these conventions are like, will you come here and sign for the fans? You're like, I physically couldn't get on the plane. I couldn't, I couldn't do it. Um, it was hard to be in front of people. And when fans wanna come up, we had to, like, we had to promote season two of Halston eight days after Dave died, because we'd already committed to an appearance. And, and the fans mean so well, and they come and they bring you cards and gifts and they want to talk about it, and it's just, like, it's so hard. Um, so yeah, Arwen dying is probably the thing I'm most afraid of, but I'm working on that, um, uh, slowly but surely. Um, so we, we do have to wrap it up, but again, we're gonna be out there, more than happy to talk to everybody. Uh, just a, a couple other things. Um, uh, yeah, uh, Ariescope.com is, uh, my company's website, that's where you can watch Scary Sleepover or Horrified or 20 Seconds to Live. They're all, it's all free stuff just for you guys to watch. The podcast is called The Movie Crypt. It's on every Monday uh, at 10 a.m. There's a new one. It's on iTunes and Geek Nation. Again, totally free. Some of the stories you'll hear on that podcast are just unbelievable uh, with how honest the artists are. And we have everybody from like Harry Potter himself, Chris Columbus, down to like uh, me. You know, so it's like, uh, it's amazing what you can get out of that. So take advantage of those things. Um, and every time you buy something online from that store, whether it's one of these Victor Crowley shirts or an autographed Blu-ray or whatever like that, those extra few dollars, they don't go in our pockets. They go to keeping that studio open so we can keep making stuff like this. Um, and thank you uh, from both of us for the fact that you, you do support stuff, that you paid to come and see this movie today and hatch it yesterday and all the other horror movies you're paying to see. Every time you buy a Blu-ray, any of it, it means the world, and um, I, we just can't can't thank you enough. So, so thank you. Yes, thank you. Have a great rest of the day.